Hello and welcome back to This Is Our Design, Sound On Sight's Hannibal podcast dedicated to Brian Fuller's series based on the characters created by Thomas Harris. I am Sean Coletti, contributing writer at Sound On Sight, and I am joined, as always, by Kate Kolzik, TV editor at Sound On Sight, who is now partaking I am. in the, uh, the enjoyment of alcoholic beverages, because we are sophisticated. <laughs> sure. <laughs> what will you be drinking this week, Sean? Uh, this week I am drinking a California sparkling wine. You're very fancy. Yeah, it's <laughs> it, it's not fancy if you actually look at the bottle. Yeah, that's okay. You're fancy in the pancy, and uh, you know that that's all that matters. If I had known, I would have figured something out and enjoyed a mimosa or something. But this week I will be having a gin and tonic. I'm a traditional type, you know, read boring kind of person. Uh, I will say though that this is. Um, from the gin is from the North Shore Distillery, and it's Distillers, Distillers Gin Number Eleven. It's the only booze that I have that uh, is specific in any way, because apparently there's like extra juniper berries or something in it. I don't know. I just know it's tasty, so that's what I'm. That's what I will be enjoying this week. Perfect. Just as a reminder to listeners tuning in, uh, we will be treating this season of This Is Our Design as spoiler-free. So we will be talking about these episodes uh, for people who have not seen the rest of season one or any of season two, although there will be a section at the end of each episode that uh, will allow us to talk about spoilers or upcoming events, and, and we'll denote that clearly in the post uh, on the website. And this week we'll be talking about season one, episode three, Potage, written by David Fury, Chris Brancato, and Brian Fuller, and directed once again. By David Slade, and joining us uh, also from Sound on Site is Divine Sengupta. Divine, welcome to the podcast. This is your first time guesting for This Is Our Design. Uh, yes, it is, and thank you for having me. I am not partaking in adult. I am not partaking in adult beverages, but I am silently judging both of you. That works. That's fun too, right? <laughs> that's, yes, I'm it sure, is. I'm sure that's what the listeners do all the time. It's like I don't even right. watch Hannibal. I'm just listening to silently judge the hosts. Good times. <laughs> yeah. Hey, what, whatever it gets to get us those iTunes ratings. We expect great contributions from you, and I want to begin by asking you. Uh, David Slade chooses to wrap up this episode with a close-up of Casey Roll as she's taking Abigail through several different expressions. I'm wondering if you can take us into her mind and say whether or not you think uh, the Abigail at the end of this episode is someone you more closely tie with Hannibal Lecter or with Will Graham, and why? Well, I think Abigail, the Abigail at the end of this episode, is is more closely aligned with Will Graham. I feel like over the course of of the show, Abigail has sort of been a test run for Hannibal in a way uh, to try out everything that he eventually did with Will, and I think that. Uh, you know, the fact that Abigail fell so cleanly into his clutches at the end of this episode is a testament to just how uh, devious and cunning Hannibal actually is. Because I feel like if he was not as smart, if he was perhaps as smart as Freddie Lowndes, uh, then Abigail would have figured out his game. And that that might have been the end of Hannibal Lecter and might have been the end of Hannibal the show. Uh but I, I think she's more closely aligned with Will Graham as the episode concludes because she's pretty clearly given herself over to Dr. Lecter, uh, uh, metaphorically speaking. And, the you know, it, it's pretty obvious that she's intertwined in his clutches and it's going to take a lot more effort to get her out at the end than it would have in the beginning, much like was the case with uh, with Will. Yeah, I asked that question because I 
it's clear that she is very much influenced by Lecter, which might make maybe some viewers think that she's more aligned with him. Obviously, we see her kill somebody in this episode, Nicholas Boyle, in her house, and not only out of self-defense, but in a way that Hannibal describes as gutting, uh, the same way that we see her gut the, the deer at the beginning of the episode. And so there are comparisons to both sides, I think, and yet what I focused on uh, were, during that initial scene with the deer, how she talks about it in comparison to a person. And that ability to empathize is something, obviously, that we've seen with Will Graham in these first episodes. Kate, what do you think about this? Well, first of all, I specifically noted we do have that, that, once again, that reference to hunting, and we see our first specific hunting scene, which, uh, you know, and having having that opening scene then paralleled later, I think it's significant. But what I would say, actually, immediately off of what you said, was that uh, we don't know that she killed him, I don't think. We know she stabbed him, but do we know that he's dead? I guess not well, definitively. We see her st- stab him, and then, again, and this is something that's very different watching the show now, though I obviously won't spoil anything, I'm much more suspect of everything that Hannibal says, because uh, I have learned not to be as trusting as many of the characters on the show. But uh, his his you know his manipulation of her and his setting of himself in very in a very clear, distinct paternal role, even through just his body language and his word choice when he's talking with her, um, is all very it's very precise and it's very effective. And uh, and yeah, we do start to immediate already get this like this build of a of a of a family and him positioning himself as very much as her father. So, you know, cause it's funny because when I was watching this, I was watching with my sister and she asked the exact same question, which, uh, and I think she connects much more strongly with Hannibal because of those manipulations by him. And also because Will is specifically trying to distance himself from her because that's what Alana recommends and that's what is best for her. And obviously Hannibal's not doing that. So, so I think we get a very strong connection with, for, for Abigail to Hannibal. And um, it's sort of unfortunate. Well, it's very unfortunate, but because it seems like she needs that. And unfortunately, Hannibal's the one who's there to step into that role and kind of scoop her up. I think to just sort of go back to that point you mentioned about Nicholas Boyle, I I. I... You know, when I was watching that scene, the whole beginning with uh, beginning with Abigail stabbing him, the, that whole scene always when I when I saw it the first time, and even when I rewatched the episode for this uh, for this podcast, that that whole scene always seemed very suspect in a way because we don't see Abigail actually move the knife upwards or downwards when she's stabbing Nicholas, and later on when Hannibal and uh, Abigail are leaning over the body, it doesn't look like Abigail's actually looking at at Boyle or the body as a whole. So it feels like Hannibal's feeding her something that she in her traumatic state is accepting as truth. I think you may be onto something in the fact that, you know, I don't think even, even if Nicholas Boyle was dead, I don't think the extent of his injuries was as grave as uh, Dr. Lecter was actually describing to Abigail. And I think it's, that was very, it was very deliberate choice on his part to make sure that she trusts not, she trusts him and only him as opposed to Will or even Jack Crawford or Alana. Well, she trusts him more than she trusts herself. He's he's cementing that as well. And to use the term gut 
you know, when, when she's having all of these issues with her hunting with her father, you know, it's, it's not an accident. And so, yeah, that's, I hadn't specifically followed her, her eyeline, but I, that makes sense defiant. So I'm not surprised to, to, to hear your comments on that. Uh, this episode features several characters, I think, that have some important influence on Abigail Hobbs. I think even to a large extent, what we see with her interactions with Freddie Lowndes, um, those scenes are quite important. But let's move on to a different character. And Kate, this is without question the strongest episode for Alana Bloom that we've seen in the first three. She's described as someone Jack respects so much that he can't yell at her. She controls Will's reaction to learning that Abigail has woken up by sitting him down with coffee to take it all in. And indeed, she passes the, the Bechdel test when she goes to see Abigail. Uh, what, is it, what is it about Alana that everyone else in this series, including Will and Hannibal, respects so much? And what can she offer Abigail that no other character can? Well, to, be, uh, to use a technical term, she's awesome. And uh, <laughs> that certainly helps. But she's very intelligent. She's very thoughtful. She's very precise. She's measured in her response. She's very professional. She has any number of traits that Hannibal would very strongly respond to, even if he didn't have a pre-existing relationship with her. Um, and then, you know, she's, again, it's, it's a simple thing, but she's good at her job. She's very good at what she does. And that's why Jack respects her. She also gives respect just as much as she, she receives it from, from her peers and from the other characters on the show. That's something that I wrote down several times in scenes. I got a very, TNG next gen vibe from a few of these scenes because I, I love how much of this episode is characters sitting in a room talking about the situation and trying to decide what the best way to approach it is. There's lots of sort of, um, I just was reminded of the re the boardroom and on TNG and lots of discussion of what, to, how to proceed next. But there's always, even when the characters disagree, there's always a tremendous amount of respect for each of their opinions because they all know how informed everyone is and how good at their job they are. And when you mentioned that, that element, I, I did really love that line about Jack and how he can't yell at her and she takes advantage of that. It really does give an extra little bit of humor to the, the other scenes that we get with Hannah, with, with uh, Alana and Jack in this episode. So, so yeah, that it is, this is definitely the, the best episode for Alana so far. And I would say it's probably one of the best ones, uh, at least, that I'm remembering from from the series. It's great to see her actually get to be a professional and do her job and be, you know, it, be in the position to assist. We've certainly talked in the past about how it's important to notice when and who certain characters are interacting with. And so the fact that she gets scenes in this episode that do not include either Jack or Hannibal or Will, I think is very important. Because she's taking charge in many ways, obviously in the way that she uh, sits Will down to talk first, but also in how she makes the point that she's probably the best person to talk to Abigail at first because she wasn't there. She's not as involved as he or Hannibal is, and that she can approach her in her own way. Uh, Depine, how do you see Alana functioning in this episode in ways that maybe that we've already said, if you want to expand on that or in anything else that you wanted to add? Well, I think in many ways she's positioned really effectively uh you know she she points out that she's the best person to talk to Abigail and in many ways she's right uh but more than maybe she knows because she's qu more qualified than Will to be able to talk to Abigail uh both professionally and emotionally uh she's not as engaged as well as uh 
as we see in this episode, he's he's still having flashback issues with with the actual killing of Garrett Jacob Hobbs, and at the same time, she's not you know trying to manipulate Abigail the way Hannibal is. So in many ways, she's uh, she's right in that she is the best person to help uh, to help Abigail, and and it's good to see that the other characters, uh, you know, Jack and Will, they recognize that, and Hannibal even recognizes enough to sort of keep out of her way until maybe he sees his moment right near the end. Uh, I, I, I think it's, it's a good, it's a good uh, episode to showcase just how good she is at her job and why everyone actually does respect her. Because I mean, it, un, unless I'm remembering wrong, we, uh, you know, Jack brought in Hannibal on Alana's recommendation as well. And I think this episode, this, uh, this episode's a great way to show just how good she is at her job and how she did get to this position of respect amongst everyone on the show. I think it's also important that we see her compassion. And um, and when we're seeing everybody give their varying opinions on how to proceed, it's, you know, obviously th- there's that scene we get with all three of them lined up in a row talking to uh, dad, Jack, or the principal or whatever, um, giving their opinions on, on Abigail. But Will is in a difficult headspace, trying to process what he's dealt with. Hannibal is Hannibal, so you shouldn't trust anything he says. And so as the audience, even if maybe we don't realize how wary maybe we should be about Hannibal yet, outside of just the knowledge of who he is, that he is this horrible person from popular culture, um, we know that we can trust Alana's judgment of the scene of the situation and putting her as sort of the audience's ally, I think works really well. I think it's also very telling that uh, out of everyone who comes to visit Abigail in the hospital, Alana is the only one who actually brings her like clothes and gift cards and actually shows some level of concern for, you know, the fact that Abigail's had uh, almost everything taken away from her. Um, Will and Hannibal, they don't bring her anything. And Freddie Lowndes, of course, brings her only Freddie Lowndes' uh, business card. So I think I think that's also another, uh, you know, that's also another good example of how compassionate or and how good Alana is at her job, especially compared to, you know, pretty much everyone else. That that's interesting that you bring up Freddie Lowndes because I was going to ask if that compassion that Alana shows is perhaps the only or the biggest thing separating them because. I'm naturally resistant to the idea that Freddie is an ally to Abigail in any way, but it seems like in some cases that there is an aspect to what she's doing with Abigail, what Freddie is doing with Abigail, that does kind of have some of Abigail's interests at heart, and yet there is not that compassion. And so is that the thing that separates those characters? See, I don't trust her, and I trust her less watching it now than I did when I first saw this episode. And um, that's not because of anything that comes later. It's just maybe I'm with fresh eyes. I, I'm, I'm a little more skeptical of everyone. But one of my notes I have down here, uh, when Freddie talks to Will after having you know left after that scene with them and Abigail, I, I specifically have down Freddie is incredibly manipulative because when she's in this in the room with Abigail, she's all on Abigail's side and warning her of the dangerous will. And then as soon as Abigail's not there, she's selling her out. So uh, I would say she does, you know, when Abigail's interests coincide with hers, she's happy to, to try to help 
Abigail Hobbs. But as soon as there's any conflict or as soon as she thinks there's any benefit to her, she doesn't give a crap about what is best for Abigail. I think it's I think uh, Freddie's presence is very important in this episode because it's very obvious that she's trying to manipulate everyone. And I think she thinks she's, uh, you know, it's, it's very obvious that she thinks she's uh, more clever than she actually is. And she provides an interesting contrast to Hannibal because it's obvious Hannibal is also manipulating everyone. But unlike, uh, you know, unlike Freddie, no one can see through Hannibal's act. But with Freddie, pretty much everyone can see through her act, but they're more or less powerless to really stop her because she's just towing the line between, um, you know, illegal, illegal and illegal stuff. Uh, so I, I think I think Freddie's presence is very important more to contrast just how good Hannibal is at the manipulation because Freddie is not... You know, she's not too bad at it herself. She manages to goad Will into giving her that dangerous quote about, uh, you know, don't don't piss off a man who thinks about killing people for a job. So it's obvious that she is also good at her job. And Abigail, you know, also tries to align herself with Freddie right when they go to the house the second time around. So but it, it provides a good contrast to show just how good Hannibal is, because he makes Freddie look just like an like a complete amateur when all is said and done. Certainly, and I think what you mentioned, Kate, about manipulation when it coincides with the character's interests, maybe Freddie is good at that, but Hannibal seems to have complete authority over manipulation as a process, regardless of if it falls in line uh, with his uh, motivations. Even if he's just kind of interested in doing something, he seems to be able to do that. Uh, very effectively. But I want to move on. Uh, Depay and Kate mentioned earlier how this episode is an episode in which characters seem to be sitting down and talking, which might be um, maybe unconventional or something that one might not expect from a series that should be about serial killers. This is an episode, I think, that resists normal crime scene convention also by not introducing a new killer and instead focusing on the aftermath of a previous crime through the eyes of its victims, its participants, and its observers. Is this a bold move for a network series? And are you surprised at all at the story being told in this episode? Oh, I, I think it absolutely is a bold move. Um, I don't know if I'm 100% surprised because Brian Fuller, um, even in his prior shows, has shown a level of uh, fascination, maybe? I, I don't want to paint him as someone who's particularly... Uh, sadistic but he he has in, pre, in his previous uh, series shown a level of fascination with the, the, the aftermath of death and how it affects people if you think of shows like dead like me or even pushing daisies uh, they all do revolve around this idea of death and how it affects people so given that it is brian fuller uh I can't say I'm really surprised. I am happy that he was given this level of cre this level of creative freedom to be able to actually explore it in a show on NBC, especially given the uh, lack of relative success for his prior shows. Uh, but I, I do think it's a bold move because there are a lot of procedurals that are sort of one and done, uh, especially with with the victims of a crime. They just you know, they waltz in for an episode, maybe two episodes if it's near the season finale, and then they waltz out again. Uh, and to, to linger on the aftermath of the crime, uh, you know, both with Abigail and how uh, how Abigail's coping with it and how even the rest of the town uh, 
to to a degree, not completely, but we see uh, Abigail's friend and her friend's mother, as well as uh, Nicholas Boyle, uh, figure out how they're going to cope with things. And we see how Freddie's trying to ma- manipulate things to her own end. It's 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 bold and it's very refreshing to see because it shows that the, these kinds of crimes are not just everyday occurrences in the universe of the show. That this truly is is a horrific crime and. It it does have long lasting effects as a result. Uh, in in some ways, I guess you could say it, it reminds me of Rectify in that way, uh, the the Sundance show, because both of them sort of deal with more the how people react to crimes rather than the crimes itself. And uh, you know that, that's one of the, that's one of the reasons I do actually like Hannibal because it because it does have that kind of focus, which was very obvious in this episode. Considering it's the third episode of the series, is actually really good to see. And I, you know, I think that it's a really significant move for the show to make. It feel it's reminiscent to me of that important decision that second episodes have of, are you going to just do the pilot again, or are you going to show what else this show is going to be? So, for example, on Buffy the Vampire Slayer, notably episode two is the witch, where they 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 don't deal with vampires because they, this is the, their way of show, saying. This show isn't just about vampires. It's about a lot of other things as well. So to have here in the third episode, the show say, no, we're not going to do a case of the week every week. That's kind of ridiculous to, you know, for a serial killer show, there shouldn't be that many of them about the place. But but also just we're going to we're a show that cares about the fallout. We're a show that is going to actually follow the victims and like you said, the observers and the perpetrators. And uh, so I think it's a very significant decision. And, um, you know, and there's other things that this episode had, you know, that really stand out about this episode. We don't get any of anything with Hannibal cooking. We don't get any, um, we don't get any dining. There's this takes, this episode takes all of the characters out of their normal um, beats that, that we're used to. We get a lot more Alana. We get a lot more uh, sort of conference room scenes, um, and I, I think that's an important decision for for the show in its third or second or third episode. What about you, Sean? What do you think? Yeah, well, I really like that you pointed out specifically the differences between the pilot, the second episode, and the third episode, because that's where I find it being bold, uh, that the second episode chooses to depart and do a case of the week, as it were, and then do that so well after establishing a really interesting story in the pilot that it just feels like the writers and the showrunner Brian Fuller trusts the viewers to respect what they've done in those first two episodes and to go along with them for this third episode which returns entirely to the aftermath of that first episode and like we've said that the violence is a huge thing that can't just really be ignored ignored will calls um, the, the process of experience it, the ugliest thing in the world, and it really is, and I think that this episode really shows that. Definitely. Uh, I wanted to move uh, to a slightly different topic, yet yeah, that still has to do, I think, with form or kind of how this episode functions. And Kate, I'm going to kind of draw on your, your background reading, as it were, for this question. Um, when Abigail returns to her home, she pauses at the place where her mom died and says goodbye. And, and this, to me feels like it's meant for the audience than, or meant more for the audience at least than for anyone else. Kind of similar to how asides function in drama and on the stage. And we've sometimes talked about Hannibal in the past in relation to short stories in the way scenes and episodes can end unresolved and and thought-provoking and kind of just marinate. Uh, But do you think that there's merit to to looking at Hannibal as a Shakespearean tragedy, for example? Is Hannibal Lecter 
not unlike Iago and Will Othello. That's an interesting comparison to make. I hadn't thought about that. Uh, well, certainly you can, there's, can, there are definite strong ties between Hannibal the series and Greek tragedy and anybody who's seen season two and the end of season two and just the way that structures, you know, the, the, the structure that the last chunk of this of season two takes to keep things again, spoiler free, uh, will absolutely agree there are elements of dramatic irony and of tension and there, there are definite theatrical and um tragic elements at play throughout the entire series um that's that's interesting to think of that as an aside that moment and i think you know again like i was saying earlier it's the characters reflecting on an important you know it's, it's uh, abigail hobbs reflecting on her mother's death and you know sort of stealing herself to go into her home that is now so changed but it's also the show kind of turning to the audience and saying by the way we we care about the victims on this show <laughs> we we are going to spend time looking at the aftermath in a way that most shows especially most crime procedurals or even serials often don't and then thinking of Hannibal as an Iago figure it's certainly an apt comparison in the the way that he functions as the doubter whispering in the ear of our hero and doing his best to to draw a desired result. Um, we see that in this episode, just in this episode with uh, Abigail in, in his Hannibal's treatment of her and his uh, even just again his word choice and his his posture and his tone of voice. He's very much the manipulator very much um, the villain that only the audience is maybe aware of. Um, so I think that's a, I think that's a strong comparison and uh, well done, sir. <laughs> well, there's the difference there. I think is that with Iago, we get plenty of interiority and we, we don't have access to that same amount of information with Hannibal. But what you said about tragedy, I think is very apt, you know, just looking at the pilot, for instance, um, this, if you look at it as theatrical, is a stage littered with bodies, whether that's uh, ones that remain alive afterwards in the case of Abigail or ones that are dead like the, the Hobbes' parents. And that's absolutely a, a massive quality of tragedy. I, mean, I think, for me, Hannibal also aligns with Edmund from King Lear, and King Lear, more than any other Shakespearean tragedy, is one that falls into that line. Of a, of a stage litter that buys with the end, kind of with no hope for resolve. Um, Define, well, did you want one way in? Or, yeah, go ahead, Kate. Well, and it's not just that there's a body count, but it's the way the show lingers in those moments. The way that the show, and I was just rewatching some Spartacus, and that was something I noticed about that show as well, even in, in its pilot. While some people see, oh, they're just exploiting the gore, or they're they're reveling in the the body count or the blood. It's more about in, it's more about conveying the significance of the death and the, the loss. And so the way that a Shakespearean tragedy, those death scenes, they, they draw out. People just have so many final words. They just kind of keep, it's like, how are you not dead yet? <laughs> the, the same way this show really does linger in those moments. You know, Garrett Jacob Hobbs, you know, lingers long enough to give that final last C to to will 
the characters in a Shakespearean tragedy tend to linger just long enough to give those deaths extra significance, so I think it's a very apt parallel. Fine. Do you also find theatrical qualities to this show? I I do. Uh, but first, I'd, I'd take issue with the idea that uh, Abigail's goodbye mom is just uh, just an aside to the audience because. You know, watching that scene, it occurred to me that the blood that's on that porch is all that's left of Abigail's mother because she was cremated while Abigail was still recovering in the hospital. And that sort of struck me as Abigail saying goodbye to the last physical remnants of her mother, relatively speaking, because I don't think she got her the ashes of her mother back. But either way, I I think if it was an aside, it wasn't simply an aside. It was it was more Abigail recognizing that that's all that's left of this person she knew, just as as a living, breathing person, only two three days ago. Uh, but that being said, I I think uh, I think you're you're sort of on the money with the idea of Hannibal being aligned sort of with with a Shakespearean tragedy. I I particularly like the the example of. Uh, of Hannibal being Iago because he doesn't really say much and he actually measures out everything that he says. I was actually struck this episode watching how little Hannibal actually says. And for a person, you know, for, for a character who's ostensibly the focus of the show, since the show is named after him, Hannibal maybe has the least amount of dialogue out of everyone, save for perhaps Jack, and even then, I think Jack uh, says more than Hannibal does uh, when all is said and done. Uh, but I, I, I do agree that there is a level of theatrical quality. I'm not, uh, you know, I'm, I'm rusty on my Shakespeare, but uh, I, I think, I think you may be onto something there in terms of, in terms of how everything plays out in this episode and, and going forward as well. It's strange, just because that thought had never occurred to me that I had always thought of Hannibal as maybe a better example of the short story form for the ways that we've discussed in the past. But some things I think stood out in this way as theatrical. And of course, if we, if we use a different version or definition of that word theatricality, I think that there are many ways that this series is that heightened sense of, of narrative. Um, But I wanted to move on to the part of the podcast where we get our guests best dream or nightmare interpretation. So uh, Depayan, Will takes on Garrett Jacob Hobbs' role as the person who cuts Abigail's throat, after which we see the raven stag either collapse or motion to run away. I'm not entirely sure if it's really clear because we don't stay with that shot long enough. Um, but what does this mean to you? What, what is the stag's role in this moment, and do you see it as representing a specific character or idea? Well, I've always thought of the stag uh, as representing... Will's conscience, in a way, uh, it, it, it you know, especially in this episode, it really struck me as sort of uh, his conscience slash humanity, uh, the the kind of thing he looks at uh, to be his guiding light, in a way. And so, the stag motioning to run away when he cuts Abigail's throat could perhaps mean the end of his humanity running away. But at the same time, his killing of Abigail feels very much in the dream, like a, like a mercy killing in a way, uh, which I'm sure Garrett Jacob Hobbs also thought when he, uh, when he slit Abigail's throat, uh, he thinks of it as a way to spare Abigail from what's coming next. Uh, so it, 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 in a way, perhaps it feels like Will is in, in releasing Abigail, he is also releasing his humanity or at least chasing it away, but he's doing it for the good of Abigail. Uh, now, whether, 
he thinks he sees that as a good thing or a bad thing is is difficult for me to say if he thinks it's a worthy sacrifice or not to make. Uh, I, I think I think he himself is wrestling with that decision, which is why that eventually wakes him up in such a in such a sweat. I mean, he pretty much he can, he can make a swimming pool in his bedroom from all the sweat he does in this episode. Uh, but yeah, that's that's sort of my rambling long-winded explanation. I think he wants to release <laughs> Abigail from from whatever she's experiencing. Uh, but he his he also feels that his humanity is going to run away. Uh, his humanity is going to escape him the minute he actually goes ahead with that final act of releasing Abigail. It's interesting because when we had, I think I believe it was last week with Les Chapel, uh, he tied the stag to specifically Abigail when asked if there is a character um, that you can tie it to. And in this dream, I think that's very clearly... Uh, something that we ought to be thinking about. Uh, I don't know, Kate, does that convince you one way or the other about maybe who or what the stag is doing right now? Well, I do have specifically tied to Abigail, question mark, in my notes, because uh, <laughs> I was thinking of that same conversation we had with Les last week. But um, the other thing that really the use of the stag in this episode versus last versus the brief glimpse of it earlier is... I think it's very possible the writers don't know yet. They know they have this really great um, symbol or image, the really strong visual, but I don't know that they are quite sure yet of how they're using it because this feels very different and very differently used than the stag we we got last week, walking down the hall, very sure, very confident. This This feels like a different or an incomplete maybe understanding of the stag. So there's still kind of, you know, I think it's important to remember that television most of the time, uh, especially in the early parts of a show is a work in progress. They're, they're figuring out what works, figuring out what doesn't. And it's very possible that the writers um, knew exactly what they wanted the stag to mean right away. And if any of you are listening, please write in the televerse at gmail.com. We would love to know. But um, the I, I was very struck by the difference in the physicality of the stag here from last week. And uh, this felt more like the brief glimpse we got of it in the first episode than it does the second episode. And the, the, the stag we get in the second episode calmly walking down the hallway feels much more in keeping with the stag we're going to get later. I'm thinking of a specific scene that I won't reference, but it involves walking. Um, so that's really what I came away with. It, yes, that he sli slices Abigail's throat and then the stag falters. So the stag could easily just be an analog for, for Abigail, or it could be for Will's humanity as he does this horrible thing, or it could be a lot of different things. But I was most struck by not feeling like the writers were sure. I uh, Can I, sorry, yeah. uh, if I may interject, is it possible that the writers don't know what the stag represents because Will himself is now unsure of what the stag represents to him in light of uh, his killing of Garrett Jacob Hobbs? I mean, I would say more. The writers don't know what it means, and it's convenient because Will doesn't either. That, you know, as opposed to the writers intentionally haven't worried about figuring it out because Will doesn't know. But, um, but yeah, that's possible. I don't know. What do you think, Sean? I think that that's a good 
way to read it, if just for the fact that um, I don't necessarily think that we, as viewers of television, should expect answers to all of our questions. And so I'm very willing to go along with that, to find that, that to tie it, the uncertainty of the image to the uncertainty that the character possesses, that that's perfectly fair. And everything that both of you have said, I, I really agree with, and I find that to be the most fascinating aspect of going back and doing these podcasts so far, is that this is very much a work in progress. Kate, you've already mentioned in, in the first few that we've done, um, kind of the the odd inconsistencies or maybe the odd beginnings of wardrobe, for instance, or the, the scoring and how um, they're very primitive in in their state right now compared to where they go. And so it's it's really great seeing this team work at the beginning and kind of figure itself out um, with the knowledge that I think that we have. It's really, uh, to tie in with the pilot, It's and this is a fun thing about going back and watching a show that you really have thought about. So doing a weekly podcast uh, for season two of Hannibal, we thought a lot. We probably thought too much about what everything means and the decisions that were made and why and various significances. So then to go back to rewatch season one, a season that I don't want to speak for you, Sean, that I watched every week and discussed on the Televerse and really enjoyed, but to go back and now start really digging into it, it there are certain elements in these very early episodes uh, that make me think of Will's reaction to the, the to Hannibal the Hannibal's victim on the in, in the field where I'm seeing a negative uh, of certain elements of the show and that's reinforcing what the show will become so listening you know seeing Hannibal in a button-down shirt with a thin taupe sweater in the in the pilot <laughs> is a negative of what we see this week to you know steal one of my own devil in the details where the first image you get of him in that suit it's like that that is Hannibal and I didn't realize maybe quite so much how specific the costuming for Hannibal was or what I expected him to be until I saw this other earlier form where I'm like that's not him and so it's you know that there are certain elements of the show that I feel like they're, they're figuring out and it, like you said Sean it is really fun to to watch them bring everything together what a wonderful, wonderful idea to tie that uh, observation that Will makes about negatives to Hannibal of the series as a whole, which I think really works. Um, and you're right, we, we probably did talk a little bit too much, but we're going to keep doing that, and I'm going to ask you to think a little bit more about uh, Jack Crawford in this episode, who, much like Alana Bloom, does not mince words. He admits he uh, will choose the course of action that best suits his agenda. He admittedly... Uh, lacks sympathy regarding Abigail, and he chastises Will when he admits he was wrong about the copycat uh, or about how the copycat would not kill again in the same way. As a viewer, Kate, do you find this frustrating and see him as possessing qualities we would normally expect from an antagonist, or do you respect him for all of this? Oh, well, it's very easy to be frustrated with Jack for doing his job, and, you know, everybody else, they get to be um, very touchy-feely and, and uh, oh, how does Abigail feel? But his job is to figure out what happened and find justice for the victims. So he doesn't get to really think about Abigail's fragile emotional state 
that's not his job. So uh, I actually really appreciate the balancing of the traditional um, antagonist boss who doesn't get it role with this more human side that we get for, to Jack and that we get in his interactions with and his respect for the characters who maybe are a bit more compassionate towards towards Abigail. So no, I, I don't have any, any problem with that at all. I think it's really great. And it's an important role in the show. They need somebody to be that force pushing will to be applying pressure on this Abigail case and, and on her and, and really pushing for answers in that way. I feel like he's an audience surrogate. Actually, he wants to know what happened just as much as I'm sure a certain segment of the viewers really want to know what happened. Divine, do you also agree with this, that this frustration that we probably do feel with Jack is absolutely essential to not just our understanding of him as a character, but also to our appreciation of him? Oh, absolutely. I think it's very telling that Jack mentions that he's got eight families out there demanding that he find out what happened to uh, to the victims of Garrett Jacob Hobbs. And uh, we don't actually see it because we also don't follow Jack this episode as opposed to the way we follow um, Will, Hannibal, and even Alana to an extent. So I, I, I think I think the way they position Jack is actually uh, very effectively done because he does want to solve this case and it is part of his job. And, it, and it's uh, good to see that there's someone actually to a degree concerned about you know, what what happened to those victims, because th- those people are as much victims as, uh, you know, as Abigail is, maybe uh, arguably even more so. And while Nicholas is there and he's concerned about uh, finding out what uh, what Garrett did, what Garrett Jacob Hobbs did, I, I, I feel odd just saying Garrett. I feel like I have to say his full name every time I say it out. <laughs> you do. You really do. Yeah. So it, it you know, Nick, I, I feel like uh, Jack is positioned in a way as sort of a, a little less extreme version of Nicholas Boyle in that he understands that Abigail needs time to heal, but he also understands that time is of the essence for a case like this and that there are other grieving families whom uh, will Alana Hannibal they're not necessarily interacting with, but who also deserve answers to an extent. And it's good to see that they use Jack to, to express this and they don't put it out as a negative quality in a way that it's, uh, you know, what Jack is doing is also, uh, I don't know if commendable is the right word, but it's also necessary in a way. Yeah. What I like most about what he does in this episode is in that scene where they are looking at uh, Marissa's body up in the, the Hobbs cabin and, He's just at least, whether or not Will's catching on, planning the idea into Will's head that Will's first instincts, which are that the copycat um, has a specific way of doing things and would never leave trace evidence, such as the the mark that supposedly Nicholas Boyle left across when he struck Marissa, that that that's there and that Jack is catching on to that and that Will's not trusting those instincts, even though that he really should be. Um, so his role in this, I think, is very good for those reasons that you both have been talking about. Uh, but we should move on to uh, a part where I'm going to ask you both to indulge me very greatly, perhaps more than I really ought to deserve, and uh, play the role of psychoanalyst. First, the pion, Alana says, I don't do well redeeming gift cards what does this say about her Ooh, that's a good one i've i've, I've been thinking about that since uh, ever since abigail pointed uh, out that it says something about alana 
Uh, I'm not a hundred percent sure what it really does say about her. I, if if I had to take a stab in the dark, I would say it shows she has trouble letting go of things. Uh, she feels like she has to hold on to things, perhaps even if letting go of them is the right thing to do. Uh, but I am fully willing to acknowledge that that may be reaching way, way too far. Uh, we we love to do that on this podcast. Come on. So this is there you go. <laughs> Uh, in, in all honesty, I'm I'm I'm, real, I'm not 100 percent sure what it does say about Alana. Uh, if if it just maybe Abigail's, uh, it it just maybe Abigail for the first time showing some kind of emotion towards something that isn't related towards her father, perhaps, uh, or or if it actually does say something about Alana. But if I if I have to guess, I would say that that she has trouble fully letting go, uh, which perhaps bears through in in her subsequent actions as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I- I want to do this, I think, because it's important that we're not entirely certain about any of these things. And I think that that stab in the dark is just as valid as any. I think when I consider it, there must be some quality of the fact that gift cards are a a representation of money and not necessarily currency itself that might factor in there that, that Alana can't, like, interact or participate in something unless the actual thing is there and it's not a representation but that that doesn't really like align with what she does with her job i guess so i I wouldn't be sure about that either well Um, she maybe she's not good at accepting gifts accepting uh accepting presents and and things and so or even you know i think this does maybe fit with her personality of having to commit to something commit, you know, she's got, you know, she's got, we'll see explored later in the season, her commitment concerns and, uh, you know, being handed a CD is very different than being handed uh, a gift card. Cause then you have to go through and decide, you know, make your list, decide what you want to get and, and commit with to that. And when you have the gift card, it could be anything. And so maybe that's something. Yeah, also the impersonality of, is that the right word, of getting a gift card rather than receiving something that has been chosen specifically for you, I think is something that we often think about. Um, so there might be something there. But uh, but Dr. Kolzik, your turn. Uh, Will says becoming Garrett Jacob Hobbs feels like he's talking to a shadow suspended on dust. How do you interpret this? Uh, I wrote down that quote. I was going to ask you about it. Um, <laughs> you beat me to the punch. Well played, sir. Right. Um, talking to a shadow suspended on dust. Well, it's incredibly evocative, which is why I wrote it down. Um, I th- that just, again, it's a reflection, not the the actual thing. It's a, again, it's that notion of negative space. So rather than talking to Garrett Jacob Hobbs, it's talking to his shadow, the 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 space he leaves behind him and uh, the negative space of the, of the person and suspended on dust to me highlights the fleeting nature of it. It's there. It can give a very strong image and uh, it can be very memorable. I I think of um, impressionist paintings and the notion of trying to capture the instant of light the way that the light hits the dust and everything, the imperfections of the world and capturing that moment uh, in, in a painting. And so capturing a person, you know, the, the negative space behind a person on the dust 
to me emphasizes the impermanence of it, but the strong impact that that person can have. So that's my rambling thoughts. Yeah. Sean, <laughs> can I come up with one for you? Did you leave one yeah, for yourself? I didn't have one for myself. Go ahead. Yeah. Oh, goodness. Okay. Give me a second here. Okay. Look at, so my, look at my notes. Ryan, feel free to weigh in on the, the shadow if you'd like. Oh, no, I think I think Kate Kate just made me look, uh, you know, slightly dumb with her much more <laughs> thorough and detailed analysis, and I don't want to dig that hole in deeper for myself. Okay. <laughs> and or I overthink about everything. Good times. Oh, I guess you did talk. I was going to call you out and not really com- committing to the stag, but you talked a little bit about that. Um, <laughs> I've been trying to comment on everything that I ask. It's difficult sometimes. Okay, my, my question um, for you is, uh, and I'm going to you know sort of um, check in on, on your thoughts on this over the course of the season, but where is, where is Will right now with Garrett Jacob Hobbs's C? Because we see it directly referenced this week. It's clearly been playing in his mind. And it's something that, you know, spoiler alert, the show will come back to at some point. Um, where is Will in relation to C? And what does what does he think that C means right now? Okay. Let's see. There, in the scene, the sequence in which... Um, all of the characters are at the Hobbs residence, and this is when Abigail has her outburst about reenacting the crime. Uh, Alana mentions a a French term that I forgot the definition of, but it's meant to be in that scene applied to Alana, and yet we see Will's reaction to it. So he sees Garrett Jacob Hobbs in that instance, and now he's worried about how closely related to Hobbes he is. And so that C, I don't necessarily think that it means Will is becoming like Garrett Jacob Hobbes. I think that Garrett Jacob Hobbes, and again, you're right, Depine, I can't not say that. It has to be the full name. Um, He, as a serial killer, and I want to, I'll mention this again later in one of our segments, he um, possesses certain qualities that Will doesn't and can't, even though he can empathize fully. I still don't think that there are some things that... I still think that there are some things that Will doesn't have a grasp on. And so it's almost as if the whole event is supposed to be digging into Will's subconscious and that he should be paying closer attention to Hannibal. And yet there are so many distractions. So to answer the question in a roundabout way, I think that's directed at, at Hannibal Lecter. And Will's supposed to be trying to make that connection. We're trying to make sense of it in some way. And I guess just because this is the third episode, it makes sense that it's still very much up in the air because we can't have Will catching on that quickly because there's plenty of story left to tell. That would be my answer. Interesting. Okay, now we've all done the analysis. Are we happy? We're good? <laughs> Tell me about your mother. <laughs> uh, we'll move on to our three recurring segments, beginning, of course, with Kate's Classical Corner. Kate, what can you tell us about the scoring in Potage? Well, as I mentioned last week briefly, there's no classical music in this episode, and uh, it's a bit odd for me, uh, as I always enjoy that element to the show, but of course, we don't have any scene of Hannibal dining. We don't 
have uh, much of um, much, you know, of, of handleable in a more relaxed state or a less professional one. Like, we don't tend to get classical music underneath his psychiatry scenes. We tend to get them over, you know, when he's sharing a drink with someone or uh, when they're when he's uh, theoretically relaxed and sort of chill. So so we don't get any classical music this week. But the the scoring elements that I noticed uh, specifically in the Alana and Abigail scene, which we mentioned earlier, there is a single held pitch in that scoring throughout almost the entire scene. It it doesn't change. And that can be very, it's very gentle. It doesn't have, you know, it, it would be easy to not notice that the pitch hasn't changed. But when you, when you hold a note that long over through an entire scene, after a while, the audience starts either tuning out, but because there's so much happening in that conversation with Abigail and Alana, I don't think there's any fear of that in this moment. Instead, the audience keeps waiting for it to change because we expect a resolution, a change, or just something. So when you just, you know, have, have that note held, it keeps you in suspense just as Abigail is still in process. She's not, you know, we, she doesn't know what's going to come next. She doesn't know really where she's at. She's sort of in a holding pattern. And so, so are we. So it doesn't allow the audience to, to relax in a way that later moments throughout the score of this episode will, you know, there's another moment with Abigail and Alana, for example, that holds a, a pitch in a, you know, for quite a while, but then goes into a melody. We expect music to, to change. That's a, one of the sort of rules of melody is that the note has to change. And so to, to have that underneath that scoring, it's, because the instrumentation is so gentle and soft, I, I want to say it's a woodwind, but I didn't write that down in my notes. Um, so that might not be correct. But because because that note doesn't change, it really uh, highlights, you know, an, an uneasiness in the score or in the, in the moment without it being negative or dissonant or uh, more dr more dramatic. It's just sort of a little touch that I that I was enjoying at least. When Will is in the lecture hall, unlike the second episode, we do we do not get the guitar line, so they're already kind of moving away from that. Or it'll come back next week. Maybe it'll come back next week, but it's not that instrumentation for him is not very present this week. Um, though there is a nice little sting when Hannibal comes in. That that's nice. Uh, there's some dissonant. You know, minor seconds and the woodwinds and percussion that that's pretty fun when freddie is talking to abigail there's no scoring until uh alana and or until will and hannibal that is come in which i think is interesting because there's very few moments in this show where there's nothing there's no background music so that was that stood out to me there's a lot of clarinet in this score compared to what you know what i remember from season two so that's that's been fun in that will and hannibal and, and Freddie and Abigail scene, there's some tritones, which is a very dissonant interval, and a minor second, which is another very dissonant, dissonant interval. Um, the Will and Hannibal and Alana uh, and Abigail scene, though, after that, when Freddie leaves, it's very peaceful um, it's, and, and reassuring. I want to say there's like a glass harmonica, but I, I could be wrong about that. Um, just, you know, very, very calm and sort of serene. So we have our our two the leads trying to protect and think of the best each of their ideas of what the best thing for Abigail may be and it's very calm and peaceful music to go with that um 
then with uh with we get when abigail returns home there's again there's a lot more clarinet but uh there's you know there's some low cello and, and the percussion that we are now very familiar with for the show but there's also some piano some like happy major sixths that's sort of tying with this notion of home as messed up as it may be that, that i enjoyed and i want to say and i'm curious are you guys familiar um with the theremin and is there a theremin scoring because there's a couple moments where i'm not sure what the instrumentation is but it sounded like it might be a theremin i don't know maybe a musical saw uh, did you guys hear any any of that um am i crazy did our listeners hear any of that i did not hear a theremin uh, but my only familiarity with it is from another episode of Hannibal. All I was picking up on was the clarinet, which you've already mentioned. There's some flute for Abigail later as well. But um, yeah, so if if our listeners can chime in with that, because just there was a couple moments where there were a few notes I couldn't quite place, and they seemed to to not have the breath that you hear in woodwinds or in brass, um, and but to not also be any percussion I'm familiar with. So. Uh, yeah, I don't know if Defiant, if you're familiar with Theremin, or if I, I I have a complete tenure when it comes to music and identify musical instruments, so I am I am I am of no help in this segment. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, so if any of our if any of our uh, listeners can chime in with that, because given that in the source material Hannibal plays the theremin, that would seem like it would be a specific choice, but I can't really commit to it because I'm not familiar enough with the instrument. I, instrument myself to say that that's what Reitzel used in that moment. So that's, that's, that's all I really have this week. There's a lot of clusters. There's a lot of really effective scoring throughout, but those are the elements that really stood out. How about that clarinet though? Right, Sean? Uh, yeah. And like, there wasn't anything in particular, I guess that I can comment on, but just that I had noticed how heavy it was being used. So Depine, don't worry. This is a segment where I usually just have to sit back, listen and feel kind of dumb. Well, but it's like, I don't remember it being used, like, when it, it pops up in, memorably in season two, but I didn't remember it being used in season one at all, but it's everywhere. It is, and um, what struck me most about this episode, other than that, was the, the lack of classical music, which, um, I guess because we've been doing this segment this whole time, was something that I did pick up on, which was very strange and, and almost kind of um, disarming in many ways. Uh, but let's uh, move on to the second of our recurring segments, which is the devil in the details. So any little things that stood out in the episode to us, be they visual or otherwise, pieces of dialogue, funny moments, whatever you'd like to mention. And uh, we'll begin with Tapayan, if you'd like to start off. Well, uh, the thing that struck me the most about this episode, uh, in terms of detail-wise, is when uh, when Will is... Uh, uh, is painting the profile of the Minnesota Shrike copycat killer and Hannibal is watching on him. There's that gradual expression of almost pride that spreads across Hannibal's face over the course of uh, Will explaining it out. And it, it, that actually struck me uh, both in terms of how, uh, you know, how Hannibal genuinely does appear to want to uh, be friends with will in a way i guess or, or at least he doesn't see will as just another cold mark someone to be manipulated like abigail or someone to just be eventually consumed like everyone else it's it's clear he has he has some level of genuine connection towards will and it's manifested in in that in that moment where he feels a sense of pride about what will has accomplished almost in a way that one would when uh listening to the thesis of of a friend perhaps uh 
so uh, I actually I really like that little moment, and and there's also a second moment which I don't know if this is a very hidden detail, but in the in the moment uh, when they're in the house just before Abigail's friend pops up from the back, and there's also that little bit where she just appears to seems to almost come out of nowhere. Uh, but the detail that strikes me there is when Abigail brings up, uh, you know, recreating the last moments and she points to Hannibal as uh, you be the person who called on the phone. And part of me wonders if she knew even at that moment that Hannibal was the one who warned her father. And this was sort of her way of telling Hannibal that I'm, I'm onto you, or maybe that uh, I'm suspicious of you in a way. And and that's what eventually led to Hannibal's later actions to manipulate Abigail into into pretty much giving herself over to him. Or if that was just a complete coincidence on Abigail's part and that offhand remark was what ultimately became her downfall. Because everything Hannibal does in terms of disrupting Abigail's life happens after that moment. So I'm pretty sure that is what led to Hannibal actually going through with it. Now, whether Ab- whether he was founded in his suspicion that Abigail actually figured him out or not is is something that this episode left me wondering. Even though she explicitly points out in the end that she knows it was him, I have to wonder if she knew even all the way back then in her house before any subsequent disasters had happened. I think you're onto something. I think, yeah, Sean. Yeah, no, I was I was going to agree with that. Yeah, and uh, Abigail knows, and Hannibal knows that Abigail knows, and then that influences the rest of the episode. And I really like that Abigail is shown to be so perceptive, both in that scene and then later in the episode as well. And um, yeah, it, it it gives it makes you appreciate her quite a bit, and you know, because she's not just another person; she's not just another random. Uh, I, I think for Hannibal to take interest in her, which he clearly does, um, she would have to be special. And in that moment and in the later interaction with Hannibal, she proves herself to be worthy of his interest, I guess, is what he, maybe he would say. But um, but no, I think you're absolutely onto something there. She's an incredibly strong character throughout this episode. So, yeah, I, I would agree once again. So, Kate, give me your two best details. I think that's probably a good number. Yeah, yeah. I only have a couple in this one. And... Um, and so what my first one is, uh, Hannibal's back, baby. That, that costuming when we first see him, I love that tie. I mean, he, the image of him in this, as we, as we first see him in that, like, sort of, cha- like, plaid or, or windowpane kind of, kind of suit, uh, with that, with that tie, that, that is the Hannibal that this show has most demonstrated or shown us. And so, uh. I enjoyed the costuming throughout and, uh, and, and then there, the use of the other one I'll, I'll go with is, um, the use of blue and yellow in the trees really stands out, but, but specifically the set design for Abigail's room at the hospital, I really enjoy. And the cost, I feel like the costumers dressed the characters to, to match with that. Cause Alana's in that sort of blue, like really dark blue kind of jacket plaidy kind of thing, which looks great in that room with the blue wall. And Abigail has that um, smock or dress or whatever with the, the light blue and the, the green on it and everything. But I, I really was noticing all the uses of blue and the way it made Freddie's red hair pop and it made, the way it made everybody's eyes. There's so many people on the show with like gray or light green or blue eyes. And also all of that use of blue really made, made all of them pop. So I really enjoyed the, 
some of the costuming and the set design in this episode? Uh, the two things that I'll point to are things that Hannibal does, interactions with Abigail. First, when he and, and Will visit her, and he makes a suggestion to go for a walk since she's been cooped up. And then at the end of the episode, as she's climbing down the ladder in his study, how he offers his hand kind of just as a courtesy for the last couple steps. Um, just little things that show that compassion that we were talking about earlier in the podcast, I think, and in some ways allows him to be a paternal figure, which I think seems to be being implied to some extent, and we can probably talk about that uh, in future podcasts, or perhaps in our next segment, Spoiled Meat, which will be for listeners who have experience with this series. So anybody who has not seen any further episodes, please fast forward now. Okay, the, the one thing I wanted to start with uh, was how Nicholas Boyle trying to convince Abigail that he didn't kill Marissa. Uh, it, it wasn't, I don't think, visually tied with the Will and Freddy scene from this past season, season two, but it, it reminded me immediately of that. A character trying to convince another character that they did not kill somebody. Did either of you pick up on that? No, but as soon as you say it, I feel silly for not have <laughs> coming connecting them because I, I agree. As soon as I think about it in that context, it, it feels very reminiscent. Yeah, so uh, we'll just leave this open floor if either of you want to mention anything about further episodes. Uh, it's actually, I, I have to wonder about, uh, you know, watching this episode and, and the focus they gave on Alana really made me wonder about her character arc throughout the course of the second season. Uh, do you guys think, and, and maybe maybe this is something something you guys probably have discussed before, but do you think Alana's character arc, you know, believing Hannibal, uh, even as Will clearly, uh, you know, even as Will clearly falls into a, into a deeper emotional pit solely due to Hannibal's influence, really makes sense in light of what we see of her this episode, her, her empathy, her willingness to see all sides of an issue kind of thing? Um, I, I think it can, and I look forward to seeing how my thoughts on that change as I we go through season one and I you know rewatch all of that. But um, I think in season two it comes down to her trying. I think there's a lot of um, self defense in her response to Will. What is the less painful thing to accept? The fact that Will was sick and killed some people because he was sick. Or the fact that he killed a lot more people, or the fact that this person I've known since, you know, they were my mentor when I was in college is a sociopath who's been killing and eating people uh, this whole time. So, you know, I think that with her empathy, it can go either way. It can be her empathy can be towards Hannibal or it can be towards Will. And so I don't actually see this as a as as a contradiction, maybe. I think you're right. To be thinking about it as a lot of ground to cover, and yet, just based on what I remember from having watched this, and I've actually seen this first season um, a second time before coming to this podcast, I rewatched it with my brother, and I think that that ground is covered. But it does seem so strange the contrast between looking at it now and where we end up at the end of the season, uh, season two. But I think Kate, you're right that um, it's not really a contradiction right now. I would say. 
Another moment that kind of was reminiscent for me, like you said, Sean, uh, mentioned the moment earlier, yeah, it was Abigail's realization that she probably ate people really mirrored Will's realization, you know, to a lesser extent, maybe less extreme reaction, but uh, really mirrored Will's in season two about Hannibal. Was that just me? Uh, well, like you, now that you've mentioned it, of course it does. You're right. Yeah. But that's not something that I had noticed while watching. Yeah, no, like, likewise, likewise. Uh, I, I don't have anything more to add, but yeah, that, 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 that's really a, that's really a realization I should have been able to make before you spelled it out for me. The only other thing I have here, uh, well, it's fun to watch. <laughs> it's fun w knowing Hannibal better after a few seasons. It's fun to watch him watch everybody else, and there's just such a, like a dance puppet dance kind of glee in his eyes <laughs> that is pretty fun um but i'm curious what you guys think of the how they've handled will um in this episode and you know compared to the first couple episodes and then what's going to come later because by the time you get to the second season all of that you know he's on the spectrum and he doesn't like eyes is just gone He's looking in people's eyes all the time. Here, it seems like they're already getting away from that. Um, what did you guys think of of his, you know, theoretical autism spectrum disorder kind of treatment in this episode as compared to what came before and what's going to come after? I think in many ways, uh, I feel like people diagnosed, uh, you know, doctors before, uh, before Alana, maybe, maybe when Will was in grade school and... Uh, and stuff. Uh, doctors diagnosed him as being on the spectrum because they couldn't quite figure out what his deal was. And he sort of ran with that. And everyone he subsequently met has sort of run with that. But I don't know if that's necessarily true. And I think the show sort of reflects that as as he gets put under more stress. Uh, it's, it's a diagnosis that kind of makes sense on the surface and uh, puts, uh, you know, and, and doesn't cast will in the light of we have no idea what's really going on with him but it's not necessarily true and it, it's entirely possible that the writers know that and will to an extent knows that about himself but he still takes it because it's easier than explaining to strangers it's easier to explain to strangers that i'm on the spectrum than i empathize with serial killers to the point that i imagine myself in their place yeah, that's not really very pithy, is it? <laughs> no. not, not a great iceberg at parties, no. <laughs> um, I, I'm not versed in some of this, but am I right in remembering that Asperger's, if you have that, you can't empathize with people? Am I, am I misremembering something? Yeah, the Asperger's does not mean that you lack empathy. That's, that's completely different. Okay. So, yeah, well, just to go back to your point, um, it is something that they kind of just drop, and it's already beginning to happen. And yet, I think that they key in on so much interesting stuff with Will, not necessarily related to that, that I guess I, it just doesn't bother me unless I think about it. And this should be a defining trait of his, and it ends up being something completely different, which certainly can be frustrating. Yeah, I, I don't know... Um if it was really frustrating for me, but going back and seeing how extreme that element of to the character is in the pilot, 
to have them so quickly go away from it seems a little odd. But, uh, you know, I, even just, I don't, and maybe Depine, I think your explanation makes a lot of sense. Um, so maybe it's elements of it were our construct of will, and we can't necessarily trust his self-analysis. Um, but uh, also I think there's just certain realities of a TV show. You want to be able to show your characters looking at each other. Um, and so I, I, it's hard to know how much of that is them figuring out what works for the TV show and them expanding the character. Uh, a couple of things I'll mention in this section. Um, I don't remember... Let's see. When we see Hannibal in his plastic suits, I don't believe he has a hairnet or anything, right? No, I don't think so. so I think he has a hood on his plastic suit, but I, I could he? be wrong about that. Because in the pilot, no, in last week's episode, that's how they find out that Freddy was up in the cabin was because one of her hairs was there. How does Hannibal not leave hairs where he goes? He's magic. He's evil, <laughs> evil magic. It's, it's so strange. And the other thing was, um, just thinking about it, I think Garrett Jacob Hobbs might be one of the best serial killers that this show has had. It was kind of just dumb luck that Will got him, maybe. Well, not, not entirely that, but I think he got... He was very fortunate in many ways and made connections, obviously, that nobody else can make. But Hobbs got away with it for so long and so effectively... I, I would rank him up there in terms of one of the more effective serial killers that there has been on this series. Yeah, it's hard to prosecute someone when there aren't any bodies. Uh, Debian, oh. was, was there anything else that you wanted to mention in this section? Well, the, there there is one thing, and this is uh, this might be a bit of a tricky question. Uh, watching Garrett Jacob Hobbs' philosophy this week, uh, especially the way Abigail mentions it, that he, he consumes every part of the body, otherwise it's just murder. Um, I I think of Hannibal Lecter's own philosophy tor- towards uh, towards murder. He seems to just, in a way, maybe just take out who he, the people he feels are the lesser parts of humanity. He, t- uh, you know, it's, it's pretty obvious uh, the minute he marks Marissa for, for death is the minute that she, you know, she talks back and is rude towards her mother. Um, it's very obvious, the, uh, you know, in the second season, when he, the point at which he marks Mason Verger for death, uh, regardless of uh, the kind of action Verger takes towards him. Uh, and I have to wonder if, uh, you know, would you consider Garrett Jacob Hobbs a more noble killer than... Uh, Will uh, Hannibal, at least in terms of the philosophy he takes towards killing? Um, I That's a difficult question to answer, not just because you have to get into each character's personal philosophy, but I think that it's difficult more so because you have to respect Hannibal's, um, not ambivalence, but he seems to be a character who kills not out of any specific motivation. Yeah, he says, you know, rude people deserve this. But he's very much, I don't know, I I consider him such a a blank slate in many ways, and we've talked a little bit about that on the podcast before, that he's so contradictory from episode to episode sometimes in some of his philosophies that I have a hard time believing anything he says, and so I have a hard time understanding why he does any of the things he does. And so in that way... I don't even know what his philosophy is, really. He kind of just kills at random to me sometimes. And and compared to other killers besides Hannibal, I would say that, yes, Garrett Jacob Hobbs is coming from a more 
noble perspective. Um, but Hannibal's way too tricky for me to get a grasp on. That's fair. And I mean, you know, considering you're, you're mentioning how Gar Jacob Hobbs gets away with it for a long time, Hannibal gets away with it for, you know, for even longer, all things considered. Yeah. What, what Sean said, I, I don't have anywhere near a strong enough grasp of uh, Hannibal to uh, be able to give a, a, an interesting or informed opinion on that. But I do think it's an excellent question. And it's one that I will keep thinking about as the series continues. Fantastic. And I believe that will conclude this week's podcast. Uh, and thank you again, listeners, for tuning in. Kate and I will be back next week to talk about Season 1, Episode 4, the deleted or unaired episode. Uh, but until then, thank you again to Pines and Gupta for coming on and talking with us. Where can our listeners find you online? Uh, you can find me on Twitter and under the handle Dean Epe, and you can find me on Sound On Sight uh, in the news and TV sections. Uh, uh, I, I do over the past season. I uh, reviewed Supernatural, Believe, The Vampire Diaries, uh, Veep, and a few other shows that are slipping my mind right now. Uh, but uh, yeah, they're, they're all on there. You can find me a lot in the news section as well. Uh, if if you are catching up on True Detective now, Sound on Sight also had a Darkness Becomes You uh, podcast on on True Detective, uh, which I co-hosted with our chief editor Ricky. Uh, and yeah, that that's that's where I am. Kate, where are you in the world? Well, you can find me at Sound of Sight as well, because that's where the cool kids hang out, as I uh, seem to, as I would, at least I think so. Um, uh, you can find reviews from me there. Currently, actually, I have to wait. I'm not sure what my next show is going to be that I'm reviewing at Sound on Sight. Maybe The Bridge, maybe uh, The Strain. I don't know. We're going to see about that. But you can find articles and posts from me there. You can find me on Twitter, at The Televerse, where uh, I love to talk about all these shows with uh, with y'all, so drop me a line there. And of course, I do also have some reviews up at the AV Club. Right now, I should have reviews of uh, Spartacus going up week to week um, with uh, the, the sort of the re-airs on sci-fi and kind of comparing the original version to the sci-fi versions. And then, of course, Blackadder I'm reviewing all summer and uh, some other stuff as well. So you can check me out in each of those places. And, of course, you can always email, by the way. Sometimes people are looking for other ways to contact us. You can always email Sean and myself uh, by emailing theteleverse at gmail.com, and I'll make sure that uh, Sean yeah, can pass it on to Sean or whatever you guys want to send us. But we love talking with you guys, so please drop a line. Ask us all the questions, and we may give you all the answers. They might not be answers that you'd like, but they are the answers that you need. <laughs> when all uh, else fails, 42 is the answer. Yes. Well, that's, clearly. It's also true. You can find my written work at tvovermind.com. Otherwise, it'll appear at soundonsite.org, also where I help Kate co-host the Televerse, where TV all the time, every week. Even How if did it, I not mention that? <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's just way too much. That's why. Too much yeah. TV to talk about, too much TV to review. Um, but yeah, our, our stuff exists online and it's pretty good. I would say. Hopefully. Hopefully. I, I, I can't say definitively, especially, <laughs> uh, because I'm subjective, but that's it for this week. Once again, thank you listeners for tuning in. This has been another episode of this is our design.